Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Judges. Judges chapter 7. Seems like it's been a while since we've been, been in Judges, doesn't it? And would you express your appreciation to our worship team? I know they just left, but I'm very thankful for what they do every week. We're going to be looking at the story of Gideon. And before we look at the text, um, I was thinking about this, the, the point I'm trying to make today. There's a lot of interesting kind of contradictory advice we often hear or give people. So, for instance, you ever heard this line? That if you want to move forward in life, sometimes you have to go backwards. Now, does that really make sense logically? <laughs> if I'm going to go forward, shouldn't I be going forward? But, but sometimes I think what that advice is saying is that in order to advance and go forward in life, you have to deal with the issues in your past, stuff behind you, before you really go forward. Or maybe you've heard this advice, expect the what? The unexpected, all right? Expect the unexpected. Or less is more. Some of you are saying, Pastor Rick, you should apply that to your sermon length, right? Less is more. <laughs> we hear all this kind of advice all the time, and the Bible is actually full of some of this kind of advice. It says things like, the first shall be last, and the last shall be what? First. Or if you save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for Jesus, you'll save it or find it. Well, let me give you another one that I think Judges chapter 7 with Gideon brings up today. It's talking about this idea of having strength and weakness that if we're going to be strong in the Lord, we actually have to be weak before him. So if you have your Bibles, let's look at Judges chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. And I won't make you stand yet. Keyword is yet. That'll be later. 7 verse 1 says, early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon. And by the way, he's called that because in chapter 6, he had demolished a, an altar to Baal that God called him to do, to do that. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Harad, the camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. So if you remember chapter 6, which seems like a while ago, the Israelites were being oppressed by the mighty Midianites, so much so that they were oppressed economically, physically, and spiritually. And, and, and we've seen this cycle all through Judges, haven't we? All through Judges with the people of Israel, we've seen this cycle where the people are doing well, and then they forget God. And then God is upset with the people because the people are following other gods. So his righteous anger is poured out on them and, they, and he gives them over into the hand of their enemies. And in their affliction, the Israelites cry out to the Lord and then he raises up a deliverer, a judge or a leader to save them. And God delivers them through the leader and then things are going well again. And guess what the Israelites do again? They forget God. Well, right now, the Israelites have cried out to the Lord. God has raised up a deliverer or judge in Gideon. And Gideon and the Israelite army is getting ready to fight the mighty Midianites. So it says in verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. This is too many men in your army. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So think about that for a second. How many people did they start with, class? 
32,000, a little math this morning. And they went from 32,000 down to 10,000, about the population of the size of Decatur. And just so you know, by the way, in chapter 8, we actually learn in chapter 8, verse 10, that the mighty Midianites have 135,000 people in their army. So even to start, 135,000 Midianites versus 32,000 Israelites is not good odds. But God says, you have too many men. All those who are afraid can leave. And that whittles down the army now to 10,000 versus 135,000. By the way, how many of you would have been afraid if you're in an army getting ready to fight a bigger force? I know I would. (laughs) The Lord brings up a really interesting principle here in verse 2. He says again, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. You see, God is telling us today that whenever we boast in ourselves, we're actually boasting against who? The Lord. Self-boasting is actually boasting against God. God wants to get the credit. He wants to get the glory. He wants us to see that all of our victories, including salvation, it is all on him, isn't it? He doesn't want us to take any credit for it. So God says, I want to teach Gideon and the Israelite army a lesson that true boasting is only found in boasting in God, not our own strength. You know, if you were to finish this blank, finish the blank, the greatest danger in your spiritual life is what? What would you say? You know, if you ask your neighbor beside you, I won't make you do that right now, but if you did, I'm sure they, each person might say something a little bit different. But let me tell you that one of the greatest dangers in your spiritual life, according to this passage, is boasting in yourself. It's you taking credit for your life and your victories and your salvation rather than giving the credit to God alone. And we all have this tendency to do it, don't we? Even ministers, even in ministry, when something goes well, We're kind of prone to pat ourselves on the back and think, oh, it's because of my great planning that all this happened or because of my great uh, teamwork or my talent. Let's keep going, verse four. Verse four says this, but the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So verse five, so Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. So God still says, you have too many men. I'm going to separate those who drink water based on those who lap it up like a dog. So, so literally, as the men went to drink, those that got down like this, stuck their face in the water and lapped it up like a dog, 9,700 of them did this. God says, I don't want those men. I want the men who do what? Who scoop up their hands like this and drink water. Now, I was trying to figure out, is there something spiritual behind this? It's so bright up here today. 
Is there something spiritual behind this? Why would God use this as a way of whittling down the army? Because because the first one kind of makes sense. If you're afraid, you can leave because fear is contagious. Maybe that would spook the rest of the army. But, but why would God keep the guys who just scooped up water with their hands as opposed to putting their face in the water and lapping it up like a dog? And do you want to know my very spiritual answer? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I've heard many people say, well, maybe these people were more discerning, more watchful, more alert. And God wants us to be discerning and more watchful and more alert. And while I'm all for all of those things, I don't know if that's really the reason why. Other than God wants to whittle down the army to 300 versus how many Midianites again? 135,000. I mean, if you look around this sanctuary right now, we probably have almost a couple hundred people. God is bringing down the army to a a group almost this size, maybe a little more, to fight 135,000 people. And he's doing it so that they will not trust in themselves, but they'll trust in God. Because they'll realize that if you're going to have strength in the Lord, you actually have to be weak before him. So let me talk about what that weakness means for a second. This is really my first point How do we actually have strength and weakness? Well, number one, we have to define and understand what weakness actually is. Because how many have heard that before, that there is great strength in being weak before the Lord? It's one of those weird principles in Scripture. But I don't always think we understand what that weakness means. So let me try to define it. Being weak spiritually doesn't mean you're lazy. It doesn't mean you're dumb. It doesn't mean that you lack preparation or training. Those things can be very good things. It doesn't mean you lack talent. And it doesn't mean you're necessarily a wimp for Jesus. Nor does it mean that you have to misunderstand your identity in Christ. Because I believe as Christians, we have incredible reason for confidence and trust in the Lord with the Holy Spirit leading us under his authority. Let me try to define weakness in this way. I have four Kind of four words, really, four quick statements. Number one, weakness is dependency on God. Say that with me. It is dependency on God. It is not self-dependent or self-sufficient, but it's dependency on God. That's what God's trying to teach them and us. Number two, weakness is also neediness before God. Say that with me. Neediness before God. We need to realize, Scripture says, how much we need the Lord. And then number three, weakness is dependency and neediness. Let's say this one together. It's humility before God. And then number four, last but certainly not least, let's say this together. It is giving God the glory. Weakness is dependency, neediness, humility, giving God the glory. So it doesn't mean you have to lack talent necessarily or be dumb, although God can use all that stuff. It just means that you are focused on God, depending on God, and you realize you need him so much. I found a great quote by a scholar named Dr. Davis. And here's how he describes it. He says, I would stress that Gideon's and Israel's weakness is not false weakness induced by mere modesty. Weakness is their real condition. So in Christian experience, it is important to define what weakness is not. And I love this part. It does not mean that you are a glob of spiritual jello that flops at God's feet. Isn't that a great image? (laughs) It does not mean that you whine a lot or that you look pale or have the flu. You may not feel weak at all, but it has little to do with how you feel, though I think it can include that. 
You do not necessarily feel weak. You are weak. That is, you are stripped of all human resources and are forced to lean upon God alone. And this is exactly what God is doing with Gideon. He is whittling down his resources from 32,000 to 300 so that he and his army are forced to lean on God alone. I find another great author that put it like this. Why does the Bible prefer weakness to strength? Because, because he makes the case um, the Bible is not necessarily saying that if we were all just dumber and uglier and less successful, then life would go better. That's not what the Bible's saying. Why does the Bible prefer weakness to strength? Well, for starters, he says, this weakness is primarily spiritual. It's being humble. It's being broken. A broken and contrite heart you will not despise. Moreover, weakness is better spiritually often because when you are strong, whom do you usually lean on when you are strong and have everything together. You lean upon yourself. But when you're weak, or really you realize your weakness before God, you lean on him, and he gets the glory. So this very first point, if we're going to be strong in the Lord, we have to realize our weakness, and we have to define what weakness is. And if you read the book of Judges, this is how God loves to work. If you go back to Judges chapter 3, God saved Israel through a left-handed man. Remember Ehud, the left-handed man that God used to kill the fat king Eglon and the blade went all the way in and then scripture says that he relieved himself. It's very blunt. But Ehud, most likely, that would have been a surprise. He was kind of a weak man, a left-handed man in a culture that didn't always prize left-handedness. Or in chapter four, we see the same principle with Deborah. God saves through a woman and I don't mean that in any way disrespectful to women, but in that culture, women were like second-class citizens, so the fact that God would save through a woman is very surprising. We're going to get to the story of Samson soon, too, and he's known for his what? His strength, you know? I can't wait to get to Samson, kind of a man's man, we think. But surprisingly, even though God uses his strength, it's actually in his weakness at the end of his life that God really uses him for his glory to defeat these enemies. So the question for you this morning is, do you understand weakness? Do you understand that it's a good thing that before the Lord, if you are dependent and needy and desperate for him, that's actually right where the Lord wants you. Let's keep reading. Verse 9. And if you're able, would you stand now for the reading of God's word? Let's see what happens in verse 9. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up. Go down against the camp because I am going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Pura and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Pura, his servant, went down to the outpost of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as what? Locusts. These are like grasshoppers that would come in in swarms and eat all their crops in minutes. I mean, that's how thick their army was. And it even says their camels could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. That's a lot of camels. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hand. And you can be seated. We'll stop there for now. 
So this brings me to my second point. How do we actually have strength and weakness and realize that if we're going to be strong in the Lord, we have to be weak before him? Well, number two, let's say it together. We must remember God's mighty presence. We have to remember who God is compared to us and his might and his power and his attributes and his presence. By the way, if you remember chapter six a few weeks ago, has God already given Gideon signs of his presence? Absolutely. In fact, he's already given him three signs that he's with him. The first sign was in chapter six when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon and called him to be their deliverer. Gideon made him a meal and the angel said, put it on the rock and Gideon does so. And then the angel touches it with his staff and fire consumes it. And Gideon says, I have seen the Lord face to face and I am alive. And then at the end of chapter six, there's that famous fleece incident where Gideon tests God twice with the fleece. One time it is wet and the ground is dry. One time the fleece is dry and the ground is wet. So three times already, God has reassured Gideon of his presence. Why on earth does he need a fourth time? (laughs) Well, before we condemn Gideon, how many of you would have been just like Gideon, needing reassurance? I know I would have. Remember, this is before Jesus has come, before the New Testament has happened. You know, you and I are just like Gideon. God will do something amazing in our life and speak to us. And then in like a day later, we forget. So I'm amazed how much assurance Gideon needs. But you know what's even more amazing? That we have a God who loves to give assurance. (laughs) We have a God who loves to remind you that he is with you, that he cares for you, that no matter what you're going through, he is willing to give assurance. In fact, this is God's idea for Gideon and his servant to go down into the camp and eavesdrop on this servant and this dream. This is God's idea. We have a God who loves to reassure us with his presence, and that's what he'll do in your weakness too. In fact, if you think about the whole testimony of Scripture, we know that God loves to give assurance of our salvation. Romans 8, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are actually God's children. The book of 1 John, how great is the love the Father has lavished, I love that word, lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God. God reminds us of his presence and assurance all the time. But there is a really interesting principle in this too. In chapter 6, God assured Gideon of his presence before he acted, but now God only assured Gideon of his presence when he acted. Did you catch that? Sometimes God will only reassure us of his presence when we step out in faith and take a risk because Gideon and his servant had to go down into that army and listen. And so could it be in your life today as you think about having strength and weakness, being weak before the Lord, that God is calling you to act where you have to depend on him fully? And I don't know what that situation is in your life, but could it be that like Gideon, God is calling you to step out in faith, to reach out to someone who needs the Lord, to take a risk for the Lord, to trust him with your resources. Where is God calling you to act and remember his mighty presence? Let's go to the third and final one. Let's read uh, verse 15 and following. Let's find out what happens, okay? I know some of you know this story already. It says in verse 15, when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation... He bowed down and he did what? He worshiped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, get up, 
The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands, dividing the 300 men into three companies. He placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Now, if you would have been in that army, what would you be thinking at this point? Hey, this is a great weapon. Am I going to bash somebody, you know, in with a trumpet or a pot? What am I going to do with this, Gideon? You know, the music team, they already left a long time ago. They were afraid. What are we doing with these trumpets? Verse 17, it says, watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars. Grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. The army fled to Beth Shittah toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah near Tabath. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan River ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. They pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. So it's amazing what they do here. And this brings me to my third point. If we're going to have strength and weakness... We have to give God the glory like Gideon did in verse 15 and then act and trust that as we step out in faith, God is going to be strong enough to deliver and provide. It may not be exactly like the Gideon, like Gideon and the Midianites, but whatever situation you're facing, do we believe that if God has called us to it through his word and through his spirit that he's going to provide? You know, it's amazing this battle plan they have. It's actually genius because it's dark, it's the middle of the night. The, cha- the guards are changing shifts, so there's one set of guards and army going back to their tent armed, and another set of guards and army is waking up. So as they blew the trumpets and shouted, there was mass chaos, camels are going everywhere. I mean, you can't imagine that the armies, the Midianites were terrified that there really was an army attacking them, but we know that in their weakness, God was being strong. And could it be in your weakness too, whatever it is, that God wants to be strong and show himself faithful and true. Hebrews chapter 11, then we'll take communion together, says this, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, And here it is, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies.